This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number five in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, March the 5th. First, I'll be talking to Matt Nguyen, policy lead at Reset Australia, who is concerned about the amendments to the media bargaining code the government brought in to get Facebook on board. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruyan, analysing whether Jacinta Ardern's wellbeing budget actually works. But now let's talk to Matt Nguyen. Well, Matt, what's your assessment of the government's deal with Facebook? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, so we broadly think that it's just been a water down of the code. We know that it's just passed through some of the amendments that we were looking for that were proposed by Senator Patrick were rejected. Um, and I think it's kind of indicative of a, they want to push it through as quickly as possible and not have to think about it again. So we're worried about the implications on small, medium publishers. We're worried about the broader implications of acquiescing to Facebook and Google's demands so easily. But yeah, the proof will be in the pudding in 12 months when they do a review. I think one of the issues, I think, is that uh, it actually shows the flaws in the Morrison government's approach to actually bringing in legislation and invoking the wrath and of two very powerful companies in Google and Facebook 
And I personally think a smarter thing to do would have been not to bring in a, a legislation, but to bring in a code, certainly, but then get the media companies in all varieties, large and small, to negotiate a collective agreement with Google and Facebook in keeping with the code. What's your view about that? Yeah, I guess um, from our perspective, I think we would push back on that and saying that these are really powerful. These are two really powerful companies. They are some of the most powerful companies of the 21st century and only through legislation and coordinated legislation, not just in Australia, in the UK, in Canada, in the US, in the EU, might we be able to dismantle some of their influence and some of the harms that have been engendered by their business model. And so looking specifically at the news code that's gone through and what a collective bargaining agreement might have looked like or what a digital like a a pigeonholed tax might have looked like to ensure a robust and sustainable news media sector that could have worked and that might have like helped the market failure that is journalism at the moment but from our perspective at a broader view um it has to be about legislation um to rein in the harms of these big tech platforms. Only through legislation, uh, coordinated legislation, might we be able to unpack this. But one of the problems with the legislation is it's actually come in to, to support one side of the battle. That is the, uh, uh, the legacy media companies, rather than having yep. a, a, a very good attempt to try to resolve the differences between them. And that's, that's one of the fundamental issues now facing governments everywhere would you agree with that yeah i think i think it was i think how this whole process started left a bad taste in a lot of australians mouths that the hbc had a whole suite of recommendations of how to counter the platform's market dominance and even within the news media journalism recommendations there were other recommendations like funding the abc um, and stuff that weren't taken and this news media bargaining code which was seen as a Murdoch prop up was the first to get off like the first cab to get off the ranks but I guess our like we want to have a pragmatic approach to this and just because it might not have been the most optimum solution forward doesn't mean that we might be able to make it work for as many Australians as possible where it's ended to now is disappointing for us and we think there would could have been a suite of measures through this code and looking beyond this code to ensure that journalism is sustainable. We need we need to ensure that small, medium journalistic companies are funded properly. We should have decreased the 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 eligibility requirement for publishers, small publishers to get out on the code in the first place. And we need um, the platforms to be more transparent about how they serve journalistic content, who they hide, who they downrate who they index and so yeah it it could have been a lot better but we wouldn't say that it's a complete write-off um just because it started at a place that we didn't necessarily agree with uh having said that though uh the the way forward would have been surely to consult with all the media companies not and not just nine and murdoch but uh all the media companies including the small independents about how to do this Surely that would have been the way forward. Yeah, I think this this process has been two years in the making and 
Um, I can't speak for small, medium uh, enterprises, but a lot of them were consulted. The MEAA were consulted and a bunch of small publishers in the beginning signed up to Google News Showcase, such as Saturday Paper and um, that kind of stuff. But like, I think we need to bring it back to that even if they're signing these deals with Google News Showcase, it's just another flex of monopolistic dominance that Google and Facebook have, that they can um, force people to sign up uh, to their product outside of the failed safe stopgap that is the guarantee of the news media bargaining code. So they're still flexing their bargaining power imbalance here um, by trying to grab people onto the code as quickly as possible. And I guess where we're most disappointed is we saw this legislation, the intention of this legislation as an anti-monopoly, um, like to, to, to deconstruct the anti, the, the monopolistic dominance of Google and Facebook and where it's become watered down to um, has strayed away from that original intention. Well, the issue, though, is that uh, Google and Facebook are, are huge monopolies and they own so many other businesses. And uh, S- Senator Warren has come up with a proposal to deconstruct Google and Facebook because they're such big companies. Uh, yeah. Surely, that uh, would that be an option? Yeah, I think it's certainly a way forward and we'll be watching the, the class actions that the US states are putting together around that. I think where, like we personally lean into more is about setting up the appropriate guardrails and regulations more similar to what the EU has done around um, ensuring that these digital platforms work in the public interest. It's about having an undercurrent of a rights-based framework over our own data. These companies hoover up data on all of us, creating these profiles that they use to actively manipulate us, whether that's by serving ads, whether that's by engendering hate speech, whether that's by promoting polarization. Like on Facebook, 60% of people who are in extremist groups are in those extremist groups because the Facebook recommendation algorithm told them to join. And so it's about working through those issues, setting up the appropriate rights for users, as well as ensuring um, protections over all of us um, that we would probably lean into more if that doesn't work and if Facebook and Google still are causing these harms to our democracy and society, then I think it's about utilizing that um, commercial lens a bit more and seeing like what breakup might look like, what that looks like. But I don't know, I guess my personal philosophy has always been about like, let's try and make it work as it is at the moment. And then let's look at more radical approaches if these social protections um, have failed. But uh, how have you found, I mean, Google and Facebook have, uh, uh, have not exactly come on board with those sorts of uh, protections. Yeah, so the e- this is where international, this is where our government needs to play a leading role and other governments around the world has to play a leading role. These companies have more revenue than many GDPs. And so it's about countries banding together with coordinated regulatory frameworks um, in order for us to be able to combat this problem. And so um, our organization is part of a global network. We are working with governments, especially in Western liberal democracies to try and do this, but, uh, and we know that there's appetite within governments around the world to do this. So it's just about cajoling them in the right direction to, to get on that path. 
Right. Okay. 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 And uh, but that's a that's a massive job ahead, and that could, yeah. that, that could take years, couldn't it? Yeah, but I don't know, no, no, nothing worth doing is easy or something like that. But yeah, an, an issue for our time, definitely. Okay. Okay. Well, Matt, we'll watch it with great interest, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Grian. Well. Nicholas, uh, how would you define Jacinda Ardern's well-being budget and what are the key issues there? Well, uh, Jacinda Ardern got a lot of uh, publicity and a lot of goodwill around the world, actually, for saying that her budget was a well-being budget, that it that it's important to uh, not just target economic growth, but also the well-being of New Zealanders. And I couldn't agree more. The only problem is that the way I describe the well-being budget in New Zealand is that it is a, it's a budget that has been themed a well-being budget in exactly the same way that you might, if you were holding a ball, have, it, have a theme of pirates or ancient Rome or something like that. Uh, so the, the whole way that the New Zealanders have gone about constructing the budget is that the government announced five themes. Some of those themes sound, they're supposed to make you think of well-being. Some of them do. One of them is child well-being. Another one is innovation. Well, that's kind of might have something to do with well-being. It might not. And what is missing is the idea that if we're going to improve well-being, then we need to have information not just about levels of well-being and the New Zealand Treasury have been building that information for many years now, but we need to not just be able to ask what is the level of, of well-being of Maori in Christchurch. We need to that system to also tell us what are the most prospective ways of improving that well-being and the well-being budget and all of the well-being apparatus that has been built extraordinarily focuses on knowing about well-being but not the know-how of how to improve well-being. Well the issue then is uh, how can the government make it effective and you surely have to make it effective by measuring its outcomes. Yes and they do measure but but here so so I distinguish between knowing that and knowing how and knowing for. So they've got a very, they've spent, they've been much more conscientious than Australian officials in measuring well being. But to measure the well being, as I said, of, of, say, Maori in Christchurch or anywhere else, or of young children, uh, which one does, there are various methodologies for trying to do that. Uh, that's an interesting thing to do. But Actually, the purpose, we're not trying to know people's well-being. The knowing is for something and the knowing is to improve well-being. So if I was designing a well-being budget, what I'd be doing, if I was trying to shift the great ocean liner of policy towards lifting well-being, then in uh, I wouldn't do this immediately, but uh, but after a number of years, I would want every program that governments run, every community activity, 
within reason to be thinking about well-being, trying to measure well-being, but not just trying to measure well-being, but trying to understand by doing experiments and noticing what's happening, trying to understand what things are we doing now that are lifting well-being, what things are we doing now that don't lift well-being, how could we get the things that we're doing. Think of remedial teaching in school, just as an example. Is it supporting well-being? Could, if we do it differently, would it support well-being more? These are all the questions that, we, that systems need to start asking if this knowing what, the knowing what is knowing about well-being, is actually knowing for improving well-being. Well, surely you would have to build some certain accountabilities into the system, wouldn't you? Uh, interesting. I'm not sure. I mean, I mean, the answer is sort of yes, but accountabilities to whom? I think you can imagine that if there is a kind of a, an elaborate chain of accountability all the way to the top of the bureaucracy, then guess what? Bureaucracies end up having interests in mucking about with that, with that, uh, with that accountability in not being very candid about what they know. Uh, but accountability to the community. Let's say there's a community, you know, a community sporting, uh, sporting activity, and we find that certain things are consistent with promoting well-being in families and among kids, and other things are not consistent with that. Uh, so we can we can be thinking about accountability to local communities, uh, and and just the and 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 a, a little a little uh, sort of slogan of mine is self-accountability. And what I mean by that is that most remedial teachers are not asking themselves these questions about well-being particularly or not in that way. And most of them actually want to do a good job. So what we need to do is we need to be very intentional about this agenda. We need to say this is something we're serious about and we want to do. And anyone who wants to do what they're doing, only do it better with a view to promoting well-being more. We want to help them. We want to help them gain the insight into their own practice that will and track their own practice and measure their own practice so that they can objectively say, we're doing this better than we did last month and we think we might be able to do it better again next month. But I was thinking of accountability for the government. So if you have... And if you have this sort of accountability where people are telling the truth, then, uh, and, and you may want some checks for that. Of course, if you're trying to be accountable, you're trying to be honest with yourself and you may, I mean, I've, I've argued for a, a mechanism which I call the evaluator general, where the, me, the, the monitoring and evaluation of programs is the, the, the way in which the, the reporting lines say in a school of the monitoring evaluation of the quality of the school not just the business of the school or even the education department but uh, but go up also to what i call an evaluator general in other words you have more public reporting but you're what you're trying to do is you're trying to generate information at a at a low level of, at a fine level of granularity in the community about what kinds of things are working uh, and then you report on it. And if you do that, then the community, when they see it, will say, 
that that looks good. We want this, we want more of this. Now, what is very likely to happen with the well-being agenda? I'm prepared to bet someone on this is that in about four or five years' time, there'll be a new uh, nice word that comes along. The one that was before before well-being was resilience. I don't know whether you remember this, but about 10 years ago, five years ago, people would talk about resilience. We're going to be more resilient. A nice sounding word, but it never gets down to the weed, down into the weeds. And so it's good politics. Everyone kind of does this in good faith, but they don't actually change anything much. And then we move on to another nice agenda. If we did what I'm suggesting, I think we'd not only have a well-being agenda, we would build it into the institutional fabric of government and community lives, and we'd be the much better for it. But uh, the bottom line is we'd need something like an evaluator general or, or an auditor general evaluating. Um, well, yes, I, I prefer to say that we need to, that, that a critical question is we need to be honest with ourselves. And that's a tricky thing to do. The famous uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman said in science, the first principle is you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to get all the NGOs out there, all the charities, all the teachers, I'd like to get them excited about objectively measuring their performance, not for the boss, but for themselves. And once you do that, uh, and once you've developed something which has that integrity to the people doing the work on the ground and then travels further up, then you're starting to get a genuine system of accountability, which is a candid system of accountability, not a system of what I call accountability theatre. And that is, uh, it may surprise listeners to know, essentially how Toyota quadrupled productivity, uh, labour productivity in automotive manufacturing. They brought accountability down to the self-accountability of teams on the production line, gave them literally 10 times as much training in understanding what they were doing, in understanding their digital machine tools, and gave them the autonomy to improve their work. I'm trying to build a mechanism of social policy that is analogous to that. And it's very different to most people's idea of accountability, which is that you have some great figure in the sky imposing accountability on all the little people down below and forcing them to be dishonest with you in the end because everybody's trying to justify their job. Well, Nicholas Groon, those are very, very interesting concepts and let's see uh, whether any government will ever do anything like that. But uh, thank you very much for your insights. Governments can do it at very local levels. A school could do it. It can be done at any granular level and I suspect that's where it will need to start. Thank you very much Nicholas. Thanks Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well the value of Chinese investment in Australia collapsed last year in the face of tougher scrutiny by Canberra, a breakdown in bilateral relations and a global downturn in foreign investment owing to the pandemic. 
The dramatic drop in Chinese investment came as other members of the Five Eyes intelligence network, including the US and UK, rushed to tighten oversight of foreign investment on national security grounds. New data show China's investment fell 61% to 1 billion Australian dollars in 2020, mm -hmm. down from 2.6 billion dollars a year earlier and a peak in 2016 of 16.5 billion. The year 2016 was a high point in Sino-Australian ties that coincided with a free trade deal. In contrast, just 20 transactions were recorded last year. China's investment in 2020 was limited to just three sectors, real estate, mining and manufacturing, a big shift compared with previous years when activities spanned all industries, according to a database tracking Chinese investment managed by Australian National University. And Chinese enrolments in Australian universities have collapsed by 23% in a year, a figure that is set to dramatically worsen after reports of Beijing is advising agents to direct students to other destinations. Reports emerged last week that education agents across China have been directed to not recommend or advertise Australian institutions. University leaders say they still don't have concrete evidence that Beijing is working against Australian universities, but note that reports coming from China follow a similar pattern to those that the preceded news of bans on beef, barley, coal, lobster and wine. And the Reserve Bank of Australia held interest rates at 0.1% and kept its quantitative easing program unchanged at its Tuesday meeting. The bank reiterated its expectation that it will likely hold rates at 0.1% for the next three years to allow for the labour market to tighten and inflation to pick up its target range of 2% to 3%. And Australia's GDP has grown by 3.1% during the fourth quarter on a on quarter basis, smashing consensus forecasts for a 2.5% increase. On a year-on-year -year basis, the nation's GDP is down 1.1%. And Australia's housing market is booming again, with the biggest monthly price gain in 17 years. The combination of ultra-cheap credit and low stock levels put, put Sydney and Melbourne on track to hit new record highs, dispelling fears for COVID-induced downturn. Nationwide house values surged 2.1% in February, the largest increase since August 2003. CoreLogic Inc. data released Monday showed capital city prices gaining 2.2%, led by Sydney and Melbourne. And home loans have surged during January, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics data, which showed growth well ahead of market expectations. Home loan values climbed 10.5% in January, smashing expectations for a 2% increase on the back of December's 8.6% rise. Investor loan value rose 9.4%, beating expectations for a 3% increase following December's 8.2% rise. And company profits have fallen short of expectations. Company operating profits fell 6.6% in the fourth quarter, below expectations of a 1.3% rise, and below the third quarter's 3.2% increase. And after a year of bumper harvests that supercharge Australian farming, next season is looking less stellar with the total value of output set to shrink on lower commodity prices and reduced volumes of crops and livestock. The overall value of farm production is forecast to contract 4% to $63.3 billion Aussie in 2021-22, according to a report from the government forecast ABARES. While that figure is expected to remain above $60 billion over the next five years, the sector faces challenges, including pressure on red meat prices as China rebuilds hog herds and a highly variable climate. The sector remained fairly resilient to COVID disruption last year, ABARES Executive Director Jared Greenville said, with production value rising 8% from a year earlier to $66 billion, thanks to plentiful rains which boosted the winter crop to the second largest on record. While upcoming crops are set to benefit from the residual soil moisture and improve water availability across the country, the overall 2021-22 harvest is unlikely to match the record set last season, the report noted. 
Still, exports are expected to climb 6% in 2021-22, the first increase in four years, helped by increased demand for cotton, wool and dairy products. And new figures released by the Australian Vehicle Council show Australian electric car sales stagnant at a time when the rest of the world is hitting the accelerator hard. In 2020, there were 6,900 electric cars sold in Australia, a 2.7% increase from the 6,718 sold in 2019. The 2020 figures show electric cars accounting for 0.7% of total Australian car sales. By comparison, electric vehicles in the EU increased their market share from 3.8% in 2019 to 10.2% in 2020. In the UK, it was 3.1% in 2019 against 10.7% in 2020. In California, market share went from 7.6% to 8.1%. And Scott Morrison is open to a tax increase to find the tens of billions of dollars extra that will be needed to fix a troubled, underperforming aged care sector, but is unlikely to move unless he has Labor support. As an alternative, the government is exploring compelling a greater use of retirement savings, including superannuation, when people go into aged care to help find the money needed. The Prime Minister left open the option of an income tax rise or an increase of the Medicare levy following the release on Monday of the two-year Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety Report. The option of compelling people in care to use more of their savings was not recommended by the Commission. But the report canvasses a scenario in which the federal government, which now spends $20 billion a year on aged care, would have to find up to $131 billion a year in today's dollars by 2050. To the frustration of the government, the two commissioners, Linnell Briggs and Tony Pagioni, issued 148 recommendations but failed to agree on the two fundamental challenges facing the aged care sector, how to run it and how to raise the money. Both agreed, however, that tens of billions of dollars more were needed and there should be a tax increase to pay for it. Mr Bagoni proposed either an income tax increase of 1%, so those on higher income paid more, or an increase to the Medicare levy. Ms Briggs argued for a Medicare levy increase, but says it should not be hypothecated towards aged care. She said when people enter the aged care system, they should not be required to help pay for care, saying such payments amount to a tax on frailty. Mr Morrison, who typically opposes tax increases, left the door open this time. And the corporate watchdog has accused the $60 billion REST super of misleading and deceptive conduct, alleging the industry superannuation fund tried to stop members transferring the savings to a better performing fund. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission civil case filed in the federal court on Tuesday alleges REST gained a benefit from the deceptive activity over a decade by retaining members who would have otherwise left, which subsidised fees for other members and increased the size of the fund. The move follows a two-year investigation and is one of a number of cases lodged against superannuation funds, including industry funds backed by unions and employers. According to ASIC, REST told members who wanted to take their savings elsewhere that they needed to keep $5,000 in their REST account if their boss wanted to keep making contributions. REST also told members that if their employer was happy to contribute to their new fund, they would need a signed declaration giving consent to the move and evidence that contributions to REST had ceased, ASIC alleges. The Superfund, which is backed by the Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association, also told members they needed to obtain a separation certificate or proof of employment termination from their employer if they wanted to transfer their balance to another fund. And part-time checkout attendants, shelf stackers and sales assistants would be allowed to work additional hours without overtime in a joint union-employer plan to encourage more permanent jobs rather than casual positions. The proposal, led by the Australian Council of Trade Unions and Council of Small Business Organisations of Australia, to give part-time retail staff more flexibility, rivals the Morrison government's plan to legislate a similar arrangement, but differs on specifics. Both the government's bill and the ACTU COSBOA plan are meant to tackle the same problem, 
Part-time workers are generally entitled to overtime if their boss makes them work beyond the standard rostered hours. That can discourage employers from offering workers more shifts when they would like their work, or, or mean they employ casuals who have no set shifts rather than part-time staff. The model, championed by the ACTU, COSBOA, Master Grocers Association, the Shop Distributive and Allied Employers Association, and the Australian Workers' Union, would let workers doing at least nine regular hours a week to agree to more hours without being paid overtime. Workers doing more hours regularly for six months would be entitled to convert that to be their new baseline with the Industrial Commission to decide disputes. And casino giant Crown Resorts underpaid hundreds of workers at its venues, including at its centrepiece Southbank Complex, becoming the latest company to admit to breaching Australian workplace laws. The casino business, subject to an upcoming Royal Commission after its links to money laundering were exposed, also is under investigation by the Fair Work Ombudsman. Crown, Victoria's largest single-site employer, said it had self-reported the underpayments to the regulator. Crown self-initiated a comprehensive assessment of its workforce following media reporting of widespread underpayment issues, particularly in the hospitality industry, a company spokeswoman said. And Woolworths is launching a fresh assault on the nation's fast-growing $10 billion pet industry, which experienced boom conditions through COVID-19, and has inked a partnership with South African entrepreneur Richard Enthoven whose global businesses include insurance and the Nando's fast food chain. The deal, struck late last year between Woolworths and Mr. Anthoven, has created a new joint venture called Pet Culture that is 60% owned by the supermarket retailer and is being groomed to be a one-stop shop for pet insurance, veterinary services, food and other pet-related products. Over the past year, Woolworths has witnessed growth in the pet category in its supermarkets and Big W businesses, and Pet Culture has been tasked with building a digital platform to provide dog and cat lovers in Australia with a personalised experience in how they explore, shop, learn and provide health and well-being for their pets. Woolworths has seen strong growth in the pet industry, insurance and pet food during the pandemic, with that also showing the massive uptake in pet ownership through lockdowns that saw the price of purebred cats and dogs skyrockets and many pet stores sell out of animals. And Qantas executive Andrew David has conceded there could be more job cuts at the airline beyond the 8,500 already announced before a Senate inquiry into the aviation's inquiry from the pandemic. Mr David, who was in charge of Qantas's domestic and international business, said this was because of continued uncertainty surrounding the industry's future and further redundancies were unlikely to be forced by any cessation of government support for the sector. Still, Qantas representatives told the Senate probe they thought existing support the sector, including federal fee relief and cash to underwrite certain routes, should continue until the international borders reopen. The airline's representatives said the costs for the redundancy program, which will see nearly a third of its pre-pandemic workforce cut, were north of $900 million but were largely complete. And the chairman and a board director of Rio Tinto will resign over the Dukang Gorge disaster. The big miner announced chairman Simon Thompson and non-executive director Michael Lestrange, a former top public servant, would step down ahead of next year's annual shareholder meeting. Last year, Rio destroyed the two 46,000-year-old caves in the Pilbara region against the wishes of the traditional owners, the Puta Kunti Kurama and Pinakura. A former chief executive and two top executives were forced to resign last year over the scandal. Mr Thompson said that as chairman, he was ultimately accountable for the destruction of the sacred Aboriginal site. And the trend for zero alcohol drinks, which has been a winner for beer giant Heineken, is also helping to supercharge sales of the Mugwigan wine brand for ASX-listed Australian vintage. The Mugwigan Zero range of four wines now made up 10% of the sales of the entire Mugwigan portfolio, which was already a big seller globally, Australian vintage chief executive Craig Garvin said. Mr Garvin said COVID-19 triggered a fundamental shift in many people's approach to health and fitness and they had shifted to lower alcohol or zero alcohol products. 
McGuigan Zero has made most of its gains in the Australian market, but Mr Garvin said it had also taken off in the United Kingdom, where large displays are devoted to no-alcohol products in the beverages sector. Mr Garvin said within the next 12 months, McGuigan Zero would be a brand with annualised sales of between 200,000 and 300,000 cases of wine. It hit the market in Australia just over 12 months ago. The McGuigan brand has also grown in traditional wines. The brand generated a sales increase of 21% in the United Kingdom in the six months ended December 31st, with the brand popular among shoppers at major supermarket chains Tesco, Sainsbury and Morrison's. And a group of teenagers has taken Environment Minister Susan Lay to court, claiming her approval of a New South Wales coal mine violates her duty of care to future generations. A group of eight teenagers from around Australia are driving a class action against an extension to the Vickery coal mine in regional New South Wales, given the green light by Ms Lay. The landmark case, which was in the federal court on Tuesday, could have dramatic implications for the future of the country's energy. The 16-year-old Lee complainant, Ange Sharma, warned the project would burn roughly 370 billion tonnes of carbon emissions over its lifetime if it went ahead. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Australian-based Verus Global founder, Jackson Meyer, in its first year of operation, Verus Global has skyrocketed to global success, already generating a revenue of $30 million Australian dollars. An award-winning entrepreneur, Meyer established Verus Global to bridge the gap between global giants and local small enterprises in Australian logistics. As group CEO and director, Meyer manages teams across 15 global offices located in Australia, China, Hong Kong and the United Kingdom. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what investors can expect in the market in the week ahead. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, talking BizBiZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.